Welcome to Who Watches the Watchmen podcast, a weekly discussion of the new HBO series Watchmen. My name is Derek Wong. Today we'll be discussing the second episode of the series, which is titled Martial Feats of Comanche Horsemanship. Normally, Jeff would be joining us today, but like he said last week, he and his wife, I'm here to report good news, gave birth to a beautiful baby boy. And so he's not going to be able to join uh, on this episode this week, but he hopefully will be back next week. But I want to introduce a very special guest, a friend to the podcast and friend to Jeff in real life. Am I am I saying that correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Would you like to uh, introduce yourself, Amir? Absolutely. Uh, I'm Amir Toure. I'm a friend of Jeff's, uh, my God, since the fourth grade. So we've known each other for, you know, more than two decades now. And um, I'm also a comics fan. I'm a fan of uh, TV and film. And because Jeff was having this uh, momentous life event this weekend, I just decided I'd fill in for him. Yeah, I guess we'll give him an excuse, right, for this one week. Yeah, yeah. Just just <laughs> one out, you know. Can't take, yeah. can't take it too easy on him. Yes. I, I will say that I think Jeff is uh, definitely the more knowledgeable on the comic than me and i hopefully you you have some uh big shoes to fill but i'm very confident because i don't feel very confident when i talk about the comic sometimes <laughs> oh yeah man i definitely hear that i'll do my best to fill in for jeff on the comic side i don't have his film knowledge so you know that's where you're gonna have to come in and uh, rescue me <laughs> no problem all right let's get down to this this week's episode so like last week it opens not in you know 2019 it kind of opens again on another historic event i mean i guess it's not really a historic event but at least bringing us back to world war one and what we're seeing is i guess it's it's a room full of women typing i'm guessing propaganda for the german side and we get a german officer who who's looking for Fräulein muller and apparently she could speak english and type english and he needs her basically to write this propaganda piece that's going to be aimed towards uh, American colored soldiers. And what we do know is that we we get introduced again to, I believe it's his name is Obi from the first episode, which was the father of the little boy that gets rescued at the beginning of the episode. And, you know, he, he grabs this propaganda piece from out of the air and and it kind of has this really cool monologue where the the german soldier is is talking you know kind of to the the american soldier saying like hey why are you fighting for this country that doesn't care about you and that's very poignant and i believe i was kind of reading up on this this is something that really happened right yeah 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 propaganda pieces like this yeah, so this is something that actually happened. Um, you know, yeah, as you said, really powerful. And uh, not only did it happen in World War One with the Germans, but the Nazis tried that same move in World War Two, and in the Cold War, the USSR used similar kinds of propaganda. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen The Americans, but in that show, there's a little bit of that. Uh, there's you know this spy show with Russian secret agents pretending to be American double agents. Oh my god, it's complex. But the point is that show also has some propaganda that's aimed at subverting you know the morale of colored people, African Americans in the U.S. by pointing out the hypocrisy of you know American failure to live up to our ideals. So. Yeah, actually, well, what this reminds me about is, um, I believe the movie was called Mudbound. It came out on Netflix, I believe, last year. And 
uh, a lot of that takes place after the events of, I think, it's either World War One or World War Two. One of the main characters in that movie is an African American soldier who comes back home, and he was a hero over there. But when he comes back home, he's you know he's persecuted. He's the victim of you know violent racist crimes. And spoiler alert, I guess you know at the end of the movie, he goes back to I believe it's France because he's actually welcomed there, and you know he he had a love interest there, and and so it, it kind of shows you that duality of of different nations, right? And it, it's 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 really true when it, when the letter says. Hey, why are you fighting for this country that doesn't give a shit about you? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a uh, there's a long history of African Americans uh, running away to Europe uh, in the face of in the face of oppression. So that's something that definitely uh, very historically uh, validated. I mean, I'm loving the way this episode and the premiere how they both open with kind of historical events. Or like, you know, David Lindelof is trying to give us a little bit of a history lesson while he's giving us this really racially charged show to kind of back up some of his claims yeah no it's been great i really love the history i'm loving how black the show is i really think uh they're they're doing a great job of introducing people to some aspects of history that maybe they don't know about i mean yeah definitely i didn't know about you know especially the 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 race riots from last episode so we end this scene with uh kind of obi returning home from the war and um again get to see the little boy that gets rescued at the uh, beginning of last uh, week's episode and he pulls out this letter from you know his dad's jacket pocket and then we find out later that's the same letter that the dad writes watch over this boy and then we kind of get this match shot where we go back to the 2019 and we go back to where our last episode kind of ended and we see you know the guy on the wheelchair he's holding letter but now we realize that letter was also the propaganda piece that we see at the beginning of this episode no no so that i guess that confirms uh you know our suspicions from last episode that this uh you know this is uh well this is the guy who was in the wheelchair from episode one and you know i think this uh kind of ties everything together brings it all home yes so it's in this scene right the second scene that we learned his name is will yeah 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 okay yeah because they kind of go into this kind of questioning he says i'm will uh and then he he takes he takes will back to the bakery where she takes the the pills out of his pocket takes uh takes a cup and you know puts it in this kind of coffee making machine or whatever it is and and then she goes back to her you know the secret part of her lair and has a little bit of a emotional breakdown right because she's just seen you know this person that she respects almost like a father figure hanging from a tree and when she comes back she comes back dressed it's kind of weird they, they do this whole like kind of they use i think they use the same music again to kind of when she's dressed which is kind of weird it takes me out of the scene a little bit and um so she she comes back dressed and i i thought she was just gonna go ham on this guy and start interrogating him maybe start torturing him but he she actually takes a different approach than maybe I would have expected, which is kind of nice. And she definitely gets information out of him, but in more of a kind way, you know, offers him the coffee. When he says he needs his pills, she, she like, you know, hands him some pills to take. And, you know, she keeps asking the question, like, who are you? And he keeps responding with, well, I'm the one that strung up your police chief. The other kind of information that we're getting from the scene is that he, he keeps saying that, you know, the police chief is not who he thinks, that he has skeletons in his closet. Some other interesting tidbits is that, you know, he says that he did it with his psychic powers. Uh, he kind of claims that he's Dr. Manhattan, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I thought that so, was interesting. Yeah, what do, you, what do you think about that? 
Man, so yeah, there's so much in this scene, right? So yeah. um, the first Dr. Manhattan thing for me is uh, he says, oh, yeah, uh, he claims to be Dr. Manhattan. And then Sister Knight says, well, he can't look like us. And, you know, she says that and that and that point is hit again later on in the episode. And I think that's the tip off to us that Dr. Manhattan can indeed look like human beings. And Do you I, think I it's think, trying I think to throw, they're hitting throw us hard. off? Oh yeah, no. I think it's. I think. I think that they wouldn't mention that multiple times per episode unless Doctor Manhattan was going to be appearing as a human being. And yeah. I think that ties in back to that uh, to Jeff's theory from the first episode that mm-hmm. um, maybe who we're thinking uh, this guy who we think is Ozymandias is actually Doctor Manhattan. We can go into that later when we get to. His yeah, scene. we'll we'll definitely go more into that later into the scene because there's there's things in, in that scene that make me think he is Doctor Manhattan, but there's definitely things in that scene that makes me think he's. Oh not. yeah, agree. I'm totally. Which torn. is totally it's torn. so. It's so great. Like I'm just like not. I'm thrown for a loop right now because I I, can't, I don't know which way to believe one way or the other, which is really great. Another great thing, and, and this is a little bit of a tidbit from the comics, is that he says that he has psychic powers. Which some people will be like, "What? That's weird." And there's no. I mean, uh, there's a blue guy who can blow people up, and people, you know, maybe some people don't believe the fact that he he says he has psychic powers because she she even she's kind of like you don't have psychic powers. Prove to me you have psychic powers, and. What people might not realize is that in the comics, the squid that Ozymandias creates, this is where we get into the weird part and why I think Zack Snyder partially doesn't use the whole squid thing in the movies, is that it's not the squid, per se, that kills everybody in New York in the comics. It's the fact that the squid has psychic powers. It sends out a psychic shockwave that basically kills a bunch of people. Now, how he does that is that he he takes a known psychic and clones him to create this new squid monster. So in the world of the Watchmen comics, there are actually psychics. So that's that's kind of like a nod to the comics. But it's also like now we'll get to see, like, are there other people with powers? Because we also see that he grabs that coffee and just downs it. And he's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he does something later too. That's a little yeah. Weird. We'll we'll get into that later. Yeah, but we'll get into that as as we go on. But and, yeah, and he says, you know, I strung him up. I mean, he's one hundred and five, and he looks very kind of alert, very very you know not one hundred and five. Yeah, but he says he can he he's strong enough to string up his captain, right? So like, there's things that and and later I think he says the line later when they have the interactions that I told you, but you weren't listening, kind of thing, right? He basically kind of says that to her. So it's kind of interesting to see if this will play out the way we think and and if he really does have powers or if he's just kind of playing her we'll see yeah so i i wanted to go back to another thing you mentioned too the interrogation uh, i agree i thought it was interesting she took a softer approach with this guy which is very smart it's realistic he's an 105 year old man in a wheelchair are you just gonna go straight to jump to torturing him the way you did that uh, seventh cavalry guy from last episode i don't think that's a realistic approach i think she took a smart approach and this episode does a couple things where it shows us hey this is a really smart police officer you know she gives that guy the coffee cup and he takes his drink and then bam she's got dna evidence for later so i thought that was such a smart thing i didn't see it coming and i was like you know what that's a great little move of hers and i think throughout the episode you see her struggling with her desire to be a more kind of authoritarian cop and to interrogate in a kind of a hard-ass way and to kind of take a softer more intelligent more subtle approach and there's that fight and uh you know it goes back and forth throughout the episode well, yeah, you definitely see that she's very emotional. Like she has two very distinct kind of breakdowns, you know, in this episode. The first, well, the one we saw already, you know, where she's just 
having, you know, like a very intense kind of screaming fit. And then, you know, later we'll, we'll talk about the other one, but she's also very, you know, calm and composed and very thinking like a detective, right? She's thinking like, okay, maybe this guy's right, but I have to find out. Right. And it's, it, we see that kind of juxtaposition in, in a future scene where, you know, there's other cops out there that are just ready to blow and ready to take out all the, the seven K members in, in Nixonville. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you see throughout the episode that she's somebody with a lot of emotional repression and she even comments explicitly on it in a conversation with her son later on. So we can talk about it then as well, that this, that this is an aspect of her character. I think we're going to see again and again. Yeah. And then one other thing to note is that being the kind of smart detective she is, she, she you know, she plays coy because nobody else knows about Will that she has in her, her lair locked up in the bakery. You know, she gets a call or she gets, I'm sorry, she gets a page, right? Because we know that they don't have cell phones in this world. And then she calls in like, hey, did you page me? And then she pretends to not know about the chief, right? So she's playing the long con on this one. Absolutely. And I think it's so interesting because I think who she chooses to trust with that information and when she chooses to tell them is going to tell us who she who she trusts in this universe. And uh, so far, I, I guess it's none of the other cops because I don't think yeah, she's yeah. anybody. Yeah, that's that's definitely a good observation. So let's move on to our next scene. So from this, it takes us to a scene where we're at a, a newsstand being run by an African-American man. And it looks like there's a black customer there. But one interesting kind of headline we see is that uh, on one of the newspapers, says squid fall baffles scientist. And they're actually talking about it, right? You know, the, the newsstand person is thinking it's a hoax. And he, he mentions four cities that I think the squids have fallen on. You know, one being Tulsa, another being Vancouver, another being Jakarta, and then the other being Leningrad. So that's definitely like all over the world. I, I guess I thought this was a like a worldwide event where it happened everywhere equally. Like that's just my, that was my kind of assumption from the first episode. But now to be given even more information about this world that it's happening only at four different locations. Is that what you got? Yeah, I thought that was that was odd. That was odd. I don't I, maybe it's just four different locations at this point. Right. So, you know, mm-hmm. maybe just like weather. Sometimes you got a storm here. You got a storm there. But everywhere we'll get him eventually. It's unclear. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the point that that, that might bolster that is that. Maybe this isn't a natural phenomenon because, uh, you know, the newspaper man says straight out he thinks this is a false flag attack. And, you know, he's more right than he knows because in the comics, obviously, the squid attack from Ozymandias is indeed a false flag. So, um, you know, he's dead on there. And maybe there's only four cities affected because of the four cities that whoever is orchestrating this squid rain has the resources to cause it to happen in. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then, uh, I mean, an interesting thing about the, the article also is that what is baffling them about the, like, I'm, I'm confused, like, what is baffling the scientists about the squid falls? Because what was interesting that we, I guess we didn't mention in the last episode, it seemed like when they fell, they just, like, immediately started to disintegrate, right? Or they immediately started to melt. That, oh, at least that was my observation. Like, they didn't stay like little baby squids, right? It, it's almost like they fell and then they just, like, rain, they dissipated. Yeah. 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 So I'm, I'm interested to like, you know, this is like another kind of mystery, uh, you know, building on that kind of mystery box, the the world building that he's doing. Um, you know, are we just getting a little bit more tidbit and I'm definitely interested to keep finding out more about these squids and this rain that we're seeing. So another thing I wanted to mention about this whole conversation this guy has here is he, he, he says he thinks it's Redford behind this false flag mm-hmm. and that it's Redford's 
quote unquote libstapo. <laughs> so I thought that was a very funny little line there. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess we can keep going with the scene. And there's a couple yeah, other things. Yeah. The last bit of the scene is, you know, we see this little girl come and she basically is handed this stack of newspapers, right? And, you know, the it, this seems like a regular occurrence because then the newsstandee kind of asks, hey, you know, does she really read all these? Uh, so, you know, first my brain's going like, who is she? Right, right yeah. This is probably a character we haven't met yet and we're probably going to meet soon. And it, it's interesting that person always comes to this particular stand to get their newspapers. Um, this is very reminiscent of... of uh, something that they they don't really have in the movie. So if you've only seen the movies, you wouldn't understand. But there's something that they have in the comics where there's a, a newsstand very similar to this. Even the guy who who runs the newsstand is dressed pretty much like the guy in this TV show. And uh, in, in, in the comics also is kind of spatting off a lot of political opinions and social opinions. And he is always frequented by um, the character of Rorschach in the comics. So... It's it's kind of interesting that there are some parallels definitely to the comics with this newsstand. Oh, yeah. They're drawing a direct parallel. And, uh, you know, the newspaper guy in the comics, he's a bit of a blowhard, always kind of talking about how newspaper men are so in touch with everything. And he knows everything that's going on around him. And, uh, of course, he's clueless. But um, it's interesting that not only is Rorschach one of his customers, but his other really prominent customer is a young black kid mm-hmm. Um who actually shares the same name with him, uh, and that young black kid is the is the in comics character who's reading the tales from the Black Freighter comic, that mm-hmm. uh, sort of in fiction fiction work. So that newspaper man is uh, important from a couple of different perspectives. Yes, yeah, and we'll we'll get into the the tales of the Black Freighter a little bit later. Absolutely. I mean, there's also another thing about this uh, about this here. First of all, your question: Who is she? I mean, I'm wondering: Is she Silk Spectre? Is, it, is this Lori? Because, you know, we know she's an FBI agent. We know she's going to appear on the show. Is she collecting news, reading every newspaper, the same way Ozymandias used to watch all the world's news on a bunch of different screens? Is she trying to stay informed? I don't know. It's a little unclear. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I've All these questions, absolutely no answers right now. And I can't wait to find out what those answers are. No, yeah. And one more comics tie-in. I know I'm hitting this hard, but... No, no, please. Um, there's so one of the one of so the two newspapers uh, in Watchmen that we see mentioned most often uh, are the New Frontiersman mm-hmm. and the Nova Express. So the New Frontiersman is that uh, the right wing uh, KKK apologist newspaper, and the Nova Express is a more liberal paper. So uh, in the comics, the Nova Express is actually the newspaper that launches the investigation against Doctor Manhattan accusing him of causing radiation poisoning. This was actually a plan by Ozymandias to get Dr. Manhattan to withdraw to Mars. So um, the Nova Express is a liberal newspaper, but it's also a tool of Ozymandias at the time of uh, the original Watchmen comic. And it's in a feud with the New Frontiersman. And there's a whole um, there's a whole in-comics dialogue between those two papers. And uh, importantly about the New Frontiersman, not the editor, but one of the assistants is uh, this kid Seymour, and he's the one who eventually publishes Rorschach's notes. And he, if you read the Pedia article, eventually becomes a uh, sort of an important minor figure in the field of superhero studies in uh, the world of the show. Yeah, basically, he he publishes, or he, you know, he's the one who finds the the uh, the journal, and then he he basically makes a career out of it, right? He becomes famous because of it. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's let's get into our next scene. So from here, we'll we move back to the scene of you know the crime, right? Uh, back to where Judd Crawford, the chief, has been hung, and you know we see Sister Knight kind of driving in with her black car with black windows, and uh, she stops, and you know she, it looks like she's about to get out, but then LG gets in the car, uh, Looking Glass, uh, Tim Blake Nelson's character. And they kind of have a discussion. He, in a very kind of stoic, very direct way, and very, it reminds me a little bit of Rorschach, kind of explains the death. And, you know, saying that uh, he has that really great line where he says, uh, he was alive the whole time until he wasn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought that was a really great line. And, you know, talking about comic parallels, and, you know, I, I mentioned already that he kind of reminds me of Rorschach. Uh, you know, they both have this kind of very unique mask. They apparently are uh, a little bit unliked by their colleagues, right? Because he has this really kind of uh, tact way of, of saying, like, she says something about, you know, my kids were there. And, you know, he goes, your kids? Because, right. you know, we're going to learn about this later. But, you know, he knows that, that those kids are not her kids. And it's just a very insensitive way to say something, you know, to bring up the subject matter. So he definitely does have some parallels uh, to Rorschach, which I, which I find really interesting. Oh, yeah, absolutely intentional. I mean, first of all, the other thing is he's always eating, right? He's always pulling yes. that mask up and eating something, the way that Rorschach is always eating beans in the comic, you know? Um, you know, there's the parallel, of course, with the masks. This is insensitivity. So, yeah, there's they're, they're definitely trying to do something there. And I think this is – they're trying to tie into that greater theme of, you know, are the Seventh Cavalry and the White Supremacists going to be the mirror image of the police? Are the police going to be the same as the Seventh Cavalry somehow? Um, it's a little unclear. Yeah, and then, and then going back to one more parallel. I mean, later we see, you know, he's sitting at his home, and he's watching, you know, the American uh, hero story, and he doesn't take his mask off. Right? It's like you're in the safety of your home; you should be able to take your mask off. But it's almost like he prefers it. Like Rorschach prefers the mask. It basically calls his mask his face. Yeah, almost like yeah. as though he prefers to be Rorschach more than he prefers to be Walter Kovacs. Oh yeah, that's and, a really good point. Uh, I'm interested. I was like very seeing that kind of parallel, like, well, this guy's at home. He should take his mask off, but he's wearing it like, you know, it's his face. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. One other thing about this scene is those paparazzi yes. uh, with, the, with, the, with the moth wings. So, you know, I think that's a little comics tie in, too. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there, there was Mothman in the, in the, in the comics uh, who did have these wings. And maybe that's a little shout out to him. Yeah. And then we saw it in the last episode, right, where they did that little kind of... Um, crawl over the table and we see all the names of all the Minutemen. I believe Mothman was one of them, right? Yep, yep. That's right. Yeah, so it, it's definitely tying back to the last episode, but it's also tying, you know, strongly to the comics. Uh, and then after they kind of like uh, they, you know, one Mothman falls in his car and then another one gets shocked and like <laughs> crash lands, which I thought was kind of funny. Uh, we kind of get this emotional scene where, they, you know, they start to take um, the chief down and you could definitely see, you know, when Angela kind of embraces him, it, it's it's a very emotional scene for her, which is so great because there's absolutely no talking, right? And you just see it all in her face, which is, I think, really beautiful. And then we get this kind of match cut where she's now hugging what is her husband, Cal. And we don't know it now, but we'll learn very soon that this is a flashback, right? Very Lost-esque, right? With the use of flashbacks. And they're dancing in their living room. It's Christmas Eve. It's about two minutes till midnight, which is a significant callback to the comics. And what we're seeing is the the white knight attack. 
This is the attack that we were told about last episode. This is the reason why they wear masks. Uh, this is the reason why cops have alibis, why some cops had to retire. So we see, you know, she knows that someone's about to attack them and some guy bursts through the door. He gets some shotgun rounds off, but she's able to stab this guy, grabs the shotgun, but doesn't know that I guess another guy is there. She gets shot right in the stomach. She's on the ground and the guy has her dead to rights pointing the gun right at her face she kind of blacks out and then the next, next scene is she wakes up in the hospital right next to judd yeah uh, so how do we get from uh this guy having her dead to rights to her being in the hospital and apparently she won exactly. what happened there so that's definitely something that's going to be touched on again later one thing to, i want to yeah. just mention also is just how good the fight scenes are i thought this was a really good really fluid fight scene mm-hmm. um i also thought as you mentioned it, the match cut was at first for me a little confusing. I was like, whoa, like what exactly happened here? Um, is, uh, you know, I got the flashback bit, but then when we go from the end of the white night into the scene with Judd at the hospital, at first I was like, wait, is Judd still alive? Is this some kind of weird false flag? And that's maybe just a marker of how little I'm giving trust to the narrative. I'm just kind of suspicious at every mm-hmm. turn because there's so many mysteries here. You go, what exactly is going on? Yeah. But, uh, I'm glad that's not what they're doing. They're playing it straight. It's just a flashback. Yeah. Uh, nothing crazy yeah, happened. It's just a flashback. Uh, we see that Judd's been shot in the arm, which was something interesting. I didn't mention it last week, but I did notice that when he was changing in the hospital room with um, Looking Glass at the beginning of the premiere, you could see he's changing into his uniform and he has two bullet holes in his right shoulder. So that that kind of gets explained in this episode that he got those bullets during the White Knight attack. Right. Yeah. Good catch. Yeah. And he uh, he purposely it's weird the, the dialogue they have is it's it's strange because he purposely says you got shot but you got the guy it's almost like they think that they exchanged wounds and that was it there's no mention of a second shooter but she also doesn't say like oh there was a second guy yeah it's very weird so that that was very weird to me like i don't i don't know i don't know if it's going to come up later but we learn a lot in this scene right it's almost as though this is definitely the this is definitely the beginning of their their bond, their relationship. Yeah, um, absolutely. Because, you know, they, they do the introductions where they, they tell each other each other's first names, like they, they don't really know each other. We find out that Angela's partner, his name is Doyle, has been shot and killed in his home, but his three kids are okay. Uh, he has a, a son and two daughters. And the, the son's name is Christopher, but he goes by Topher. And for me, at least, this was my favorite scene of this of this uh, episode, just because I love the acting between the two characters and two actors. But also, it's a very kind of tender moment where you see their relationship blossoming from this. Like, it's really sincere when she's like, you know, um, he calls her like Detective Abar and she says, you know, you know, my name's Angela. And he kind of does the same. I thought those were really tender moments, really great moments for this for this episode. Yeah, I agree. And I think uh, one interesting thing is, you know, he's saying, is, is he saying, you know, I, I let you down, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something there that he, that, he, that he says, I let you down. And, uh, you know, that's, of course, the parallel with her feeling like she let him down. Oh, yeah. Uh, with, you oh, know, yeah. him dying in the present. And he also says to her, you know, that it's okay to cry and let your emotions out. And that's just another, again, we're seeing how emotionally repressed and controlled she is um, and how it kind of comes out in these bursts of anger. Yeah. And um, to go back to the, you know, PDpedia uh, articles, there is some extra information about the White Knight attack that we learned from the uh, the PDpedia source on uh, HBO. 
so we do learn that there was three survivors to this night. So there's, you know, definitely Judd, there's Angela, and there is no mention of a third survivor in the actual conversation, right? I, I couldn't remember. Right, yeah. So who's the third person? And I'm wondering that person? myself. That's, that's, that, that was exactly my question. In the scene, it made it seem like some people, they, they were able to escape the encounter and they chose to retire then. But what you get from the article is that 40 people were attacked and only three people survived. So 37 officers died. And I guess it's just the people that were not chosen to get attacked. Those are the people that decided to retire. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think that's yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we get another uh, match cut here, right? Because the, the end of the scene kind of is the is their, you know, embracing of their hands. And then it, it goes into a match shot where Judd is put in a body bag and Angela's holding his hands. And that's where we get the line where he says, you know, I feel disappointed because I let you down. And yeah, that's a, that was a really great scene and really great kind of transition into our next scene uh, where this is uh, the point where they kind of roll into Nixonville. Right. Um, uh, the Red Scare is, is definitely leading this this charge. You know, he's telling the Nixonville. I don't know what you call them. Nixonites, Nixonvilleites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, you know, they better give up, you know, who killed their captain. Um, or else they're going to come up and round up everybody kind of very reminiscent to the comics, right? There's the scene where, you know, uh, night owl and the comedian are, are trying to kind of like calm down this riot and someone just like throws, I can't remember what he throws at, at the comedian in the comics. Uh, it just kind of ignites his like powder keg and he kind of goes ham on them. And the same thing kind of happens here, right? A bottle gets thrown at, at Red Scare, and he's just like, let's do this. And he uh, releases all the cops. And I guess in another Article 4 was released because all the cops have guns again, right? Yeah, I, I don't know if that's still left over from the first Article 4. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know how long the Article the show, was to last. I think in the show they said that Article 4 lasts 24 hours. So maybe it hasn't been 24 hours just yet so maybe yeah maybe can they still can be using guns at this moment maybe yeah i mean it's also unclear who's still in charge right now i mean yeah they bring that up they bring that up in the yeah, show they bring that up yeah who's in charge um there's a good parallel you made with uh with the comic and that and that riot that they're trying to trying to well um mm -hmm. but the interesting thing about that riot in the comics is that it's actually a uh there's actually a police strike so the police strike in 77 because they they feel like their job is being threatened by these costume adventurers. And so because the cops are off the streets striking, the um, costume heroes have to deal with these rioting crowds. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's actually the context behind it. So mm. we have, uh, on the one hand, now the cops being attacked by these people. And on the other, the, the scene you're talking about is these costume adventurers being attacked because the cops are actually on strike. So kind of a weird inver inversion there. Yeah. And then uh, Jeff you know, mentioned it last week, and it's, it's definitely – like we've keep mentioning that this show is very racially charged and, you know, we definitely get more instances of police brutality in this, in this scene, right They're They are very, they're going all out, you know, using tasers on these guys. And then I mentioned earlier that, you know, Angela takes out her emotions and this is another scene where she takes out her emotions on this guy's face that, you know, he, she encounters, which is actually a really cool scene where she's like talking to LG and then she sees the guy on the reflection of his mask. Yeah, yeah. It's about to assault them. And I was like, oh, that's such a clever way to use that mask. Again, yeah. another really cool way that the mask is being used. It's and excellent. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, it, right before this happens, she's talking and she's like, you know what? Maybe maybe this isn't right. Maybe we shouldn't be doing this. And then she just goes ham on this guy, right? Because she's just letting out her frustration. Yeah, she so says it's, multiple it's, times, come on, man, we don't need to do this. This shit is unnecessary. Yeah. But then when it comes to it, she, she's all in. And yeah. that, uh, that use of the mask as a reflecting device is, again, another throwback to the comics in the very final fight in Watchmen. You know, uh, Night Owl and Rorschach are attacking Ozymandias at his hideout in Antarctica, and uh, they're sneaking up on him, and uh, he's eating dinner, and he sees in a reflection of, uh, you know, some of his, uh, some of his uh, dinnerware, he sees Rorschach sneaking up on him, and uh, he's actually able to completely just snuff that attack. So this is something we've seen uh, in the comics as well. Oh, really good catch. I, know, I, I totally forgot about that. That's a good catch. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, again, I mean, I think uh, this show is definitely a very good complement to the first episode, right? Because I think what what the season premiere does really well is not necessarily put you on the side of the cops because there are definitely things that, you know, with especially with the brutality, with their kind of almost neglect for some of the, the regulations and rules that we're used to in our society, that it... It, it paints them in a light that maybe is not the most favorable times. And I think this episode does the same, right? Where it, it even, I think, leans more towards the side of like, well, are are we supposed to be behind these cops right now? Because it, it's definitely more brutal. And, and you know, if if this were to happen in, in our world, they would, you know, these cops would be off the force already right it's very it's very um yeah it's, it's very uncomfortable to see them abuse these people but i think we're meant to draw uh direct parallels with our time i kind of disagree with you there i don't know if i think that people would be immediately off the force if they did something like that i mean there's so many cases of police That's brutality true. where the cops you know uh kill somebody and they get a slap on the wrist or nothing happens at all so I mean, I think this world is a weird combination of more extreme and more fascist than ours and also weirdly more liberal you know robert redford who was a liberal has been president for 30 years in this world Mm -hmm. they've got some very weird regulations on gun use which is actually something kind of cool you've got to confirm that you really need this gun before you shoot somebody that's a really cool idea but then it also has the of course natural drawback that we saw in the premiere that uh you can get uh, all caught up in red tape and be shot uh because of the additional hoops you have to jump through so you know it's this it's this weird combination of this is a world where the cops just run around beating people up and they also have these regulations and not being able to use guns at the same time so i mean yeah it's just it's 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 very different the other thing i thought was interesting first i didn't realize they were going to use tasers i thought they'd just go in there with clubs or something more oh yeah yeah and uh i also was thought it interesting they were using dogs police dogs again another kind of shout out to uh racial inversion here you know the dogs used in the civil rights uh protest so again they're, they're doing another one of these kind of inversion things um something you'd see have that it would happen all the time in black communities in the real world is something you're seeing happen uh, to a white community here in this fake Watchmen universe. And the question is, like, what exactly are we supposed to draw from this? It's unclear the political situation is sort of still very muddled. So let's let's move on to the next scene then. So we, we see kind of Angela now, after seeing what, what just occurred, is is taking, I guess, the investigation a little bit more into her own hands. And she takes the cup that we see from the earlier scene with Will and takes it to this place called the Greenwood center for cultural heritage. And uh, what's interesting is that we see some people outside, you know, protesting, saying refredations are not, you know, not right. And we see those people are out there because I guess inside, this is more of like a, a cultural center about the, 
the Tulsa race riots, bringing light to those events. And we see a lot of like holograms of, of African-Americans that, that I guess it kind of tells their story of that time. Uh, we see what looks like a soldier, which I, I wasn't sure if that was supposed to be OB from the soldier that we know uh, from the beginning of this episode, but uh, that wasn't made clear. But I mean, that some people might see it that way. And then she goes to these kind of like welcome panels where uh, I guess, you know, she's welcomed by Henry Louis Gates Jr., who is a, uh, I believe, a, a very famous kind of Harvard professor. And he, in this universe, I guess he's our. Um, the, so he's Treasury Secretary on yeah, Treasury, Redford. Yeah. Um, but uh, in the real world, he's, uh, yeah, he is a Harvard professor. Um, and uh, he's well known under the Obama administration. He had a confrontation uh, with a police officer. He was coming back from uh, a trip because his key wasn't working in his door or something like that. And so it looked like he was trying to force the door and neighbors called the cops on him. Um, and so he got into uh, sort of this confrontation uh, with the police. And then uh, the incident attracted national attention and President Barack Obama spoke about it on the news and he had a beer summit where he had, you know, the cop and uh, Skip Gates uh, have beers together. So um, this is a, a, another really interesting way of tying real world people into this alternate history. Yep, definitely. And then uh, so she, she goes to one of these kiosks because she wants to, I guess, check eligibility. And um, I think this all ties back to Red Fredations. And it ties back to the Tulsa race riots because I guess um, those that are, uh, I guess, descendants uh, of those that might have been killed or or um, lost their homes during the Tulsa race riots are eligible for some, I'm guessing, for the Red Fredations. Is that your interpretation? Yeah, I think that's what it is. I think it's supposed to be a very specific reparations plan for people who um, are the descendants of victims of the Tulsa race riots. And if you read the Pedipedia article, it does show that there was a real-world case advocating for uh, reparations for the victims of the race riot. Um, this is in 2004. The case is Alexander versus the state of Oklahoma. And uh, a modified version of some of the documents from that case is actually on the Pedipedia website. Yeah, that was a very interesting read. Uh, one interesting thing to note that I saw during – because it plays like this little video – it shows some of the like like old kind of pictures of of Tulsa, and there's a uh, a picture of the and we've seen it in the premiere also the the Williams Dreamland Theater, and I just I want to bring that up just because I want to talk about it a little bit later actually, um, but you know it I think that's the theater that the little boy was in right at the beginning of right uh, yes of last yes, week's yes. episode yeah yeah uh, so well. Uh, yeah, and then so she she tests the cup, right? You know, this cotton swab comes out, and she tests the cup, and uh, she's going to get her results a little bit later. And I don't think there was a – I was trying to look it up, but I don't think there was a significance to the phone number that she gives. I don't think so. Yeah, um I find anything. But uh, just another point that we've already mentioned is the computer technology here. These kiosks look really modern for a society which isn't using cell phones and isn't using a lot of different technology. That stuck out to me. Yeah. Well, the fact, I mean, the holograms themselves are very, like, very um, ahead of, you know, we don't really, I mean, we do, but, we, you know, we don't have a bunch of cultural centers with a bunch of, like, cool holograms like that right now. So it's it's almost like they're ahead of, in, in, in many ways, but they're, we're also, they're also very behind in, in some ways. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because I, I think, um, and I, I noticed it more this time, but I, I think all their cars are electric. 
Yeah, I mean, and that that's straight from the comics as well. I mean, I guess uh, you know Adrian Veidt, Ozymandias, and uh, Doctor Manhattan, you know, uh, use their knowledge of physics and science to make a world where uh, everything is electric, and uh, you recharge your car um, at spark plugs instead of uh, at gas stations. Yeah. Um, so uh, once we, uh, she she leaves the cultural center and then she goes home, and she's greeted by a gentleman, a white gentleman, on porch. And he is here to see the kids, almost like a visitation rights kind of thing, right? Or she he mm-hmm. wants to see the kids. And so this is definitely another indication saying like, hey, if you didn't get it the first time, these are not her kids. <laughs> and uh, But this guy doesn't really care about the kids. He just, I guess, wants to get paid off, which she does. And again, this is brought up again that she's, I guess she has some money because she's easily, you know, being able to pay him off and, and the money, I guess, came from refredations. Right, yeah. Yeah, so uh, we go inside the house, and she ha- kind of has an encounter with her kids and Cal. You know, Cal's dressed up as like a, a, a giant ghost. One of, them, one of the daughters is dressed up as a pirate. Another is dressed up as an owl. Um, and, and then uh, this scene, there's a line where he says, you know, um, what are we going to do with Dad? You know, she, we're going to make him walk the plank and feed him to the sharks. So uh, there's a lot of little Easter eggs here, right? Yeah, absolutely. So there is the owl, of course. Uh, we've mentioned it last week. You know, there's the character of Night Owl. We saw the Easter eggs from last week that, that had Night Owl, and I, I'm pretty sure this is again another Easter egg for that. Um, when it comes to the pirate and the ghost, um, there is a, a scene in the comics where there are trick or treaters that come to um, one of the characters uh, in the comics. His name is Hollis Mason. He's the original Night Owl. And, you know, there's trick-or-treaters that come to his house, and one of them is is dressed like a pirate, and one of them is dressed like a ghost. Yeah, great catch. But the pirate also is kind of an allusion to, again, tales from the, the, the freighter. Uh, and, you know, the call-out for the sharks. There was a shark in that comic. So it's all kind of like little tidbits and little Easter eggs in the comics, which is really great. It's always fun. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, she has a little conversation with Cal, and, and which then leads to kind of, this conversation that she then goes upstairs and and has a conversation with uh, Topher, her son, and now it it all clicks that you know these are the kids um, that I guess she's adopted from her partner that died during the White Knight attack. Right. Yeah. Uh, and you know she she's talking to him, and what's interesting is he's playing with these toys or this toy. At first, it looks like just one of those like connect sets or something where you just kind of like magnetic sets where they kind of stick together and they form objects. But then you realize it pans away and uh, into like a wider shot and it's floating in midair. Yeah, it's very cool. Which is very cool. And then I, I, I had to go back and freeze frame it. And, and so the, the name of the toys are called Magna Hatton Blocks. So, as you know, it's a play on Manhattan, the word Manhattan, which is based on Dr. Manhattan. And what's interesting about what he's creating, it looks like a castle or a manor, right? So this is the third allusion to this, like a manor. Uh, Ozymandias or Jeremy Irons character lives in this giant manor. We saw Dr. Manhattan creating what looks like a manor or a castle on Mars. And now this little kid is is making one out of these mag- Magna Hatton blocks. So I, I don't know what it means. I don't know if it's just all easter eggs to tie together or if it has a larger purpose at this moment and uh they you know they have a conversation where she's outright telling him 
you know, hey, your uncle died, your uncle Judd died. He was hung from a, a tree. And the kid is very almost insensitive or kind of numb to the whole subject matter. You know, he, he has the line where he says, you know, well, he was a cop. That's what that's what they do because, you know, yeah. his parents died. Exactly. Uh, he was a policeman. Policemen die. Right. Yeah. So, you know, she starts this whole conversation with her adopted son off with, hey, like, listen, I'm not going to lie to you and, you know, pretend that the world is sunshine and rainbows because you and I, we don't do that. You know, and so she talks to this kid almost like he's an adult that I'm going to give mm-hmm. you the truth straight and unvarnished. Yeah. And he takes it very stoically at first and then lashes out and destroys the floating castle. And mm-hmm. this is exactly the way that she handles her emotions. She's very stoic and repressed and withdrawn. And then she lashes out. And so they're exactly. very similar that way. And I guess mm-hmm. being raised in a house by somebody, you pick up their strategies for dealing with emotional stress. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, uh, definitely good catch on that one. And then uh, the scene kind of dissolves, and, and very quickly, as as quickly as he gets angry, he's like, "Can I just watch some TV?" And his mom's like, "You know, Angela's like, sure, you can go watch TV," which is very just like up and down, up and down. Yeah, it's very, it's very weird. And the other weird thing, too, is he says, don't tell Rosie and Emma yet. I'll handle it tomorrow. So this is a kid who's taking on, you know, very adult, very mature, very yes. responsible duties yes. at a very young age. And even, you know, um, in the initial White Knight attack, he went and hit his, him, his sisters in the closet. So this yeah. is a very responsible young child who's been young, forced to take yes. on yes. these very you know, immense duties at a very young age. Yeah. And then so uh, the whole TV line kind of leads us to the next scene. We get this voiceover where it's kind of saying, like, don't let your kids watch this show because it's ultra violent. Uh, I'm summarizing here. But so we, we, we goes downstairs where we see. Uh, we, we go downstairs where we see Topher is sitting on the couch with uh, Cal and they're about to watch this, uh, you know, American hero story. Uh, I'm guessing it's the first episode of the series or of that quote unquote series we see. So it, it seems like this is, you know, the first episode, it called it this television event. And it seems like it, it, it is so because it's not only, you know, Cal and his and Topher watching it. It's uh, LG. This is the scene where we see LG wearing his mask eating and he's watching um, American Hero Story, and then we see a scene where it looks like some seven cavalry gentlemen have it have it in the background while they're creating a chess bomb. What I'm assuming, yeah, who knows what the heck they're doing? We don't know what it is yet, but I mean, it's it's definitely looming and very very threatening. But yeah, it shows you that it seems like everyone is interested in this story. So this is definitely a quote unquote television event. So I, I wanted to get into this um, before we kind of describe what this is. So uh, I uh, wanted to bring this up last episode, but I, I totally forgot. And my assumption was that this American hero story was going to be the TV show's version of Tales from the Black Freighter. Yeah, I think that's dead on. I think that's exactly what they're going for. Yeah. Um, and I think that this is – I think I think it was on Pedia, but I was reading a bunch of different things about the show. I think this is actually season two. Um, yes. It's a, it's on Pedia. They talk about it, and uh, you know, I I I, uh, I think this is season two of, of the show. Yes. Yeah, so they they talk about in Pedia. They talk about this being the second season. The first season's about Rorschach. So I want to see that season. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> like, and uh, can they release that? I want to see that season of that show. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, so it's it's interesting. If if people don't remember from our uh, comic book um, episode, and and we mentioned it again in the the film episode we did about Zack Snyder, we you know there's uh, there's a two characters in the comic and we've already kind of talked about one, right? One is the new stand person and there's a, uh, actually we talked about both of them. And then there's the black kid who, who's kind of there with him and he's reading this tales from the black freighter comic. And so it, it's kind of like this interjected kind of side story about this pirate that gets marooned on an Island and he has to get back to his wife and kids before these pirates kind of ransack his town. What, Zack Snyder couldn't do with his movie is that he he really couldn't introduce this story because I don't think it it would have worked really well in his movie. But at the same time, you know, I I think he probably believed that he couldn't get it in there because probably people would be like, what what's going on? Why am I seeing this story about a pirate? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that makes Watchmen so difficult to translate to a film medium is that those kind of intercut interleavings of uh, the pirate story with the main narrative so easy to do in a comic, so difficult to do in a film. And, um, you know, the other thing is that this, of course, the Tales from the Black Freighter, as you guys discussed, you know, the whole parallel is to Ozymandias, right? Um, so this guy in uh, who's fleeing the pirates, he commits all these uh, atrocious acts in order to get back to his hometown in time. And uh, then, you know, in the end, you know, he ironically uh, murders his wife and kills a bunch of innocent people um, and then ends up being drafted into the pirate crew of the ghostly black freighter uh, for his sins. So, you know, in the end, the ship was never coming uh, to ransack the town at all. It was coming to pick him up as if he was predestined to commit these these awful crimes. So um, this parallel was to Ozymandias. Ozymandias is uh, the one who uh, in the comics has sort of committed all these atrocities ostensibly for a greater good. But the difference is that, uh, you know, at least in the Watchmen comic, we think that what Ozymandias has done has been successful. He's averted world war. Whereas in the Tales from the Black Freighter, the guys in the end unsuccessful, all his efforts are actually for nothing. So I don't know. It's kind of interesting. I wonder if the American Hero Story TV show is going to have a similar parallel with some characters. Yeah, that, that's, my, that's my guess is that he – so I've, I've read a lot of like people's assumptions or people's theories that – the show is going to basically um, reveal that Will is is hooded justice, and I don't think that's true. I don't buy it. Nah, I don't think that's true. Just because I, I think Damon Lindelof has a, a great understanding of the comics, and the, and the understanding of the comics is that this is supposed to be a parallel to another character and not another character. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think it, you will find out who this character is that he's trying to parallel, but. I don't think this will end in a reveal that he that will is the is hooded justice. Yeah, I, I absolutely don't think that's where it's going to end up. So, I'm interested to see more of this 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 kind of uh, intercutting of this other TV show. So, well, let's describe the the, the what what kind of happens in in the scene. So, um, this is a scene that was actually mentioned in the comics, right? I believe it's mentioned in Hollis Mason's book under the hood yeah under the hood yeah where it, it talks about i believe hooded justice first ever time he thwarts a crime is he he thwarts a, a convenience store robbery right yeah so this is kind of what we get to see um but what i was that what what i guess i wasn't expecting was how ultra violent it was yeah i mean it's definitely a Zack snyder shout out right see okay i've read that too and i don't think so 
Really interesting. So, uh, because I, I think um, Damon Lindelof again understands the comic, and the comic, I, I think, is has a, a lot to say about violence. And I don't think he would purposely say like just have a super ultra violent scene just so that he could somehow pay homage or or poke at Zack Snyder. The Black Freighter comic in the comic, if that makes any sense to everybody, um, <laughs> was a reaction to the fact that there are superheroes in the world, right? Nobody wants to read comics about superheroes when you read about them in the news. So I think that this ultra-violent series within our series is a reaction to what I think the escalation of media, where to get people interested, you have to have an ultra-violent show. You know what I mean? Oh, that's interesting. I like that. And it ties into one of the points I wanted to make uh, about the introduction. So there's this warning, emotionally harmful content. This is going to be racist. It's going to be sexist. It's going to be you know, offensive to the LGBTQA plus community. And, you know, I guess that just points to, A, like the things that people find naturally appealing, maybe they're somewhat transgressive. B, Cal is watching the show with his kid, so how bad could it really be? C, sometimes these content warnings actually make something sound more awesome than it does actually warn people off. And and I guess D, you know, it's a very interesting world we're in where the FCC warning is incorporating all of these liberal ideas about things that are offensive, right? It seems as if the 2019 alternate Watchmen universe also has some of our modern ideas about sensitivity to uh, people's sexual orientation, uh, people's gender, uh, race, sex. And so it's very interesting. What would 30 years of our president, Robert Redford, end up in? And is this a commentary on the right wing and the center's push back against this, this kind of social justice uh, that is so prominent now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with kind of all the things you said. So I, I'm definitely interested to see this show within a show kind of play out. Yeah, I wonder I wonder which way it's going. And I mean to tie again right back into the politics on the Pedipedia site, we see that, you know, this PD guy's an FBI agent kind of analyzing the effect of superhero narratives on the seventh cavalry and on uh I guess uh potential crime. And uh, you know, he says that he thinks that this show is written from a very liberal point of view, which I found super interesting. So I'd be interested to watch out for that and see does the show have a political slant. Yeah, and one other thing I want to bring up from the PDpedia page. He he writes, but if season two is anything like the inaugural season, we can expect a sensationalistic hyper pop narrative that plays recklessly with history. So I think what I get from that is that we should not believe everything. I mean, because it's, you know, it's a TV show, right? We shouldn't believe everything that comes out or what we see from that TV show. I mean, the other thing is, you know, maybe this is Tales from the Black Freighter, but maybe it's under the hood or maybe it's just another piece of world building. And there's not really going to necessarily be any parallel with any character in the story. I don't know. I mean, uh, it's difficult to see where a story about hooded justice. Well, I mean, I guess a story about hooded justice could be a parallel to anybody in the story, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I guess I guess it's easy to make that connection there. Yeah, we'll see. All right. And so, while Topher and Cal are watching the TV show, Angela's off to, I guess, a gathering that. Um, awake, I think. Uh, yeah. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Awake that they're having at Jane. Is it Jane? Right. Is his wife? Yeah. Jane's house, or I guess you know Judd's house. 
What's interesting, uh, when we first get to the party, we meet Joe Keane, which was mentioned on the radio in the last episode, right? Because he's going to be a, a presidential candidate. And, and we learned from the PDPedia files is that Robert Redford is not running for, I believe, his eighth term. Like He's decided he's not running. So this world is definitely getting a new president. And, yeah. um, you know, one of these people is potentially could be Joe Keane. Uh, and then, you know, while they're talking... Uh, Angela faints. Uh, she gets brought up to a bedroom upstairs. She kind of has this really kind of loving uh, conversation with Jane, and Jane says, "Oh, just just rest here as long as you want. Don't don't worry about you know coming down and mingling." And then you know, as soon as Jane leaves, we see the kind of the switch turn, and then we realize that she fainted on purpose. That she was kind of feigning it. That she was pretending. And uh, the whole purpose was to be able to come up here and kind of investigate a little bit more. So she takes out these glasses, right, that gives her kind of almost like x-ray vision and kind of gets to see through objects. Uh, very reminiscent to the, the the glasses that Night Owl wears. Yeah. Yeah, this is another another Night Owl shout-out. Maybe yes. he has directly supplied them with technology in some way. Yeah. Well, um, going back to Pedipedia and then, I mean, my theory getting corrected last episode. Uh, I mean, he's been arrested and I guess he's still in jail. So I don't know if it's just something that maybe they confiscate all of his stuff and then reverse engineered it so that he, they use it for the police force now. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it could be that. But I don't think he will. Willfully is helping the police. I don't think I, I, that's what I get from the PDPD, at least. No, I, th- I think that's dead on, man. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, and then, you know, she she sees that there's some kind of what looks like a figure behind this door. And then when she opens this door, what she sees and what she finds is a KKK Clansman uh, hood and, and cloak with a, a police badge on it. And and then we again focus on that image from last week's episode, right? Of this kind of old picture, what I'm assuming is, is Judd and his father, or maybe Judd and his grandfather. I don't know. Um, and then are we supposed to assume that this is his? Yeah, it's unclear. Is this Judd's or is it Judd's dad's or Judd's grandparents or whose is it? unclear but this is the big bombshell of the episode right this is like the big whoa moment um i feel like there's two skeletons in his closet (laughs) he does indeed have skeletons in his closet here um and and then so there there's definitely a comic book parallel to this and we we saw it in the in the Zack snyder movie too uh when rorschach is investigating you know the murder of uh, of the comedian he you know he goes to his his loft and he, behind this kind of hidden door, discovers that Edward Blake, this guy that was murdered, is the comedian, right? We see his his outfit, his guns in this kind of hidden away closet. Uh, so there's definitely that parallel, right? But what I love about the scene is that it, it uh, kind of shocks you in a different way where I was fully expecting, like, come on, please have my theory be proven right. And we would open the door and we'd see the night owl outfit. But no, right. we yeah, see yeah. a... We see a KKK, you know, hood. I'm like, whoa, okay, this is interesting. I mean, I think this is again what the show has been doing since episode one: remixing and switching up uh, racial imagery and making it very unclear whose side you should be on. I mean, obviously, you're not supposed to be on the side of the Seventh Cavalry members, but you're definitely not supposed to be comfortable with the cops, and you're definitely not supposed to 
think that the cops are 100% good and this is just driving that home. You know, are the cops and the racists really one and the same? And, uh, you know, there's some real world parallels to this where, uh, you know, in the United States, uh, there have been some uh, articles published about white supremacist infiltration of uh, the police force. And so it'd be interesting to see, is this the case in uh, the Watchmen world as well? I mean, I I got some Civil War vibes, Hail Hydra, you know. Like, <laughs> like I, 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 my mind went straight there. Like maybe, maybe he. I mean, because you know, we we got the scene earlier where we don't get all the information. Someone definitely, you know, she's alive for a reason, right? The guy had her dead to rights, and the first person she sees is, is Judd. Of the three people that got to live, Judd is one of them. So you know, maybe you know, just theory gate here. What if he orchestrated the the White Knight attack so that he would survive in maybe a select few, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, that's just that's just my theory. That's a theory. I don't know if that's actually something I would profess that that's you know my favorite theory. No, I mean, I wouldn't put all my money on it, but it's definitely up there that somehow there's some kind of double agent thing going on. It's definitely possibly in the cards. Yeah. And then uh, we end the scene while uh, with Angela kind of leaving the party, and then it, it lingers on this painting, right? Again, drawing from real history, this is an actual painting, right? The, so the episode's called The Martial Feats of Comanche Horsemanship. The actual painting name is uh, Comanche Feats of Martial Horsemanship. Uh, it was a painting painted in 1835 by George Catlin. And so it's basically that same painting, right? It kind of d- displays this, this maneuver that uh, the Comanche uh, horse riders would do where they, you know, and you've seen it in movies where, you know, people are riding on a horse and they'll lean to the side and, and kind of shield themselves with, with the body of the horse. Um, so what I'm not too sure about is wh- why do you think this, the episode's called that? Yeah. I've been trying to figure that out. I got no idea. I mean, is this like, is the metaphor for, you know, somebody who's so skilled that they can, that they're kind of, able to hide themselves in their true intentions uh you know i i don't really know it's a it's it's a little unclear to me maybe it's a shout out to just maybe like a geographical thing you know the uh the comanche did have some of their territory in western oklahoma is it just a little bit of a history a little, a little bit of a history thing i don't know it's a, it's it's very unclear to me what that metaphor is supposed to mean Okay, well, let's uh, let's get into our next scene. So we, we take the, the left turn and we go back to visiting. I'm not going to call him Ozymandias. I'm just going to call him Jeremy Irons' character for now just because I, <laughs> I honestly, honestly don't know. Uh, so we get this scene again where it looks like his servant is serving him the same cake. And this time they're in lab coats, not in, in kind of uh, made in butler attire. Yeah. Um, Oh, first off, he's riding a horse, and he he grabs a tomato out of a tree. Yeah, very weird. Not um, a, not vines, but he grabs it that, out of a tree. Yeah, that just shocked me, and I said, "Oh boy, something weird's going on here." And uh, you know, Adrian Veidt, Ozymandias from the comics, he does have a lot of experience with genetic engineering, so yes. it is in his power to do weird stuff like this. He's got the genetically modified uh, Lynx Bubastis, um, and of course, the genetic technology required to produce the giant psychic squid. So it's not unreasonable to think that this could be either Ozymandias or uh, Doctor Manhattan. Yeah, point. and I, I've seen some people think like, "Oh, this is like definite proof that he's not on Earth." I'm like, no, because if you you know if you remember from the comics, you know his 
what what is this his his layer called Karnak right Karnak yep Karnak mm-hmm. is in, in in like Antarctica but he is able to grow a rainforest there so it's like he understands like you, you know like you said genetics and being able to kind of grow you know horticulture and everything so I I don't think that it definitely means that he's on a different planet you know I just think that again like what you said it leads you to think like maybe this is Ozymandias and not Dr. Manhattan or is it Dr. Manhattan, you know? Yeah. 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 So uh, he, we, we get to see, you know, last episode he, he says he's writing a play, right? The watchmaker's son. And I guess we get to see a scene of this play. Oh, what's interesting before we get to the, the actual play scene, you know, he, he tells his maid Crookshanks that, you know, he wants to see real tears and, but then he, he has that really cryptic line. Does it occur to you, Mr. Phillips, that you are the prop? And, you know, we quickly find out in the next scene what that means. Well, yeah, he says, he says, uh, <laughs> would you would you like it to occur to me? And he says, there are so many things I would like to occur to you. And, yeah. uh, of course, something does indeed occur in the next scene. Yeah, so we, we get to see this uh, play which reenacts the scene um, from the comics and from the movie where Dr. Manhattan is created. He, you know, gets locked in this... Um, um the, the the intrinsic field chamber thank you intrinsic field chamber thank you and mm-hmm. you know uh in, in the comics and we talked about this in our both uh the comics episode and the movie episode where this is one of me and jeff's favorite scenes right it's a really beautiful comic panel yeah, but it's also actually it. a very beautiful scene in the movie um in this one it's not as beautiful because the guy gets burned alive right jeremy iron kind of it, what looks like it's coming out of a comic right one of those like dynamite or uh things where he kind of like pulls the uh, plunger, yeah, yeah. plunger and you know sets this guy on fire you know to signify like he's becoming uh <laughs> dr uh, yeah. manhattan disintegrated by the intrinsic field yeah yeah and so and, uh, you know sorry, your emotions man. go back and forth in this scene oh my god he set that guy on fire and you go <laughs> oh wait no it must be a magic trick. and then of course uh, later on in the scene it was not really a trick at all no so we, we, we see, you know, uh, this guy descends down, right? And he's in blue paint. He's completely naked. Uh, we get our first, uh, I guess, penis on the yeah, show. First, first, first blue penis. Blue, <laughs> first blue, pe- penis. blue penis count is one right now. <laughs> um, and he's wearing this, like, giant kind of, like, Dr. Manhattan head. It looks like it's made from Yeah, I think a it's a fencing, fencing mask. mask. Yeah. yeah, fencing mask. So um, the, the big reveal in this, in this scene is that, um, you know – Throughout the scene, we see all the what, what the stage techs, right? The are they all have mask on, right? Which is kind of like well, at first you're like, why do they all have mask on? Yeah, I'm uh, wondering who's the violinist, who's the camera guy. Yeah, who's the camera guy? Who's the people? Who's the who's moving the props and everything? And then we we see the guy who takes off his mask as Doctor Manhattan is the guy, his is Mister Phillips, who who just got burned. And then all the stagehands take off their mask, and we find out that they're all clones of you know of a female and a male. And again, this goes back to the comic, what I was mentioning earlier about the squid monster, right? Ozymandias takes this man, takes his brain, or, or yeah, takes his man and kind of clones him to make this this monster. So cloning is definitely something in the kind of wheelhouse of Ozymandias. Absolutely. So again, it's another thing which makes me think, well, this really have to be Dr. Manhattan. This could very well be Ozymandias after all. I mean, this made me instantly think of the prestige, right? With uh, the clones dying, you know? Um, so I, I just thought immediately of the prestige here. Yeah. Ozymandias. I'm sorry, not Ozymandias. I'm not going to say Ozymandias. <laughs> Jerry Irons, uh, you know, takes the pocket watch out of the, you know, dead Mr. Phillips' burnt hands. And I think the clock hour reads like 1150. 
Do, do you remember what time it was? It was well, 11 50 something. Exactly. Probably 11 58, right? Two minutes to midnight. Some, something like that, right? So it, it kind of signifies again that, you know, uh, the, the clock was a, a huge thing, the, the symbolization of, you know, uh, potential nuclear warfare, right? So the, the clock was a big symbol in, in the comics, and now it's again kind of becoming this big symbol in the show, too. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a motif there of, uh, yeah. you know, our. Uh, proximity to nuclear annihilation and so you know the question is what exactly does the jeremy irons character have planned here he says he wants them to put the corpse of the dead mr phillips in the cellar with the others and he says that we're going to have a use for him before too long and that it's only just begun so he's clearly up to something yeah and uh it's, it just remains to us to find out uh, to find out what and let's get into then our last scene so we go back to angela's lair uh, with Angela, and she finds that Will has basically escaped his cuffs, and he's even um, gone to you know a shop next door and gotten some eggs so that he could to to cook them and boil them, which was uh, and then they have this really funny exchange where she's all like, you know, I I went into his closet and found the skeletons in his closet, and he's like, what? What are you talking about? Yeah, I, I didn't tell you to do that. I didn't. I didn't mean. Li- <laughs> I didn't mean literally, <laughs> which I thought was really funny because literally it was in the closet, but that's not what he meant. It's unclear if that's what he meant. He, it sounds like he's just messing with. It. Difficult to say is like, is he being completely truthful? Probably not. Is he being completely forthcoming? Probably not. If not, why not? What are his motivations? Who is this guy? And then we'll have even more questions as we get go further in the scene. But yeah, he's definitely being very evasive for some reason. Yeah, and he says like, you know, if. If you didn't let me go or if if I was still here, you know, I have friends in high places that would have gotten me out. And then, you know, she she um, I guess he sets a timer for the eggs and then it goes off. And right when it goes off, that's when she also gets a phone call, which was very convenient timing. Very. Um, she gets a phone call from, I guess, the the cultural center, basically letting her know that her results are back for Will and that he is a, a descendant or was affected by the Tulsa race. Right. In this moment, also, we see him put his hand in the boiling hot water yeah pull an egg out <laughs> and eat it w- will targaryen the first of his name <laughs> i mean this guy's uh, <laughs> a little fire immunity here what's going on yeah yeah and then you know the voiceover or, or the guy on the phone says you know this person has two descendants if you know the names of any of these descendants uh you know we can test them right now and she says her own name and the voiceover on the on the phone says you know angela is his granddaughter so now we find this kind of other big reveal where now this character that we, we thought was just kind of this random kid that, that we saw at the beginning of the first episode is now also related to one of our main characters. Yeah, it's a great – I thought it was a great tie and I really liked it. And the other thing that they said in the phone call is that you know she, it, it mentioned two ancestors and two descendants. So who's the other descendant? Yes, yeah, yeah. Who are, right. who are these other people that you know is related to this person? Yeah, but I mean, this is another great bit of cop work from her. Again, this is like the third thing she does in this episode, which is really intuitive. You know, she just immediately says, you know, it asks, the Greenwood Cultural Center presents Will's name, and then it says, would you like to present the name of any other possible relatives? And she volunteers herself, right? Mm -hmm. So she immediately guesses and immediately knows. Yeah, Yeah, she immediately has like suspicions of herself. Good cop work from her between uh, between the mug with the DNA and the hidden KKK costume, and now, you know, guessing the familial connection here, she's really firing on all cylinders as far as her uh, interrogation. Yeah, and, and I, I found this really kind of interesting theme of kind of family and, and father figures kind of uh, alluded here. You know, once you find out that he's 
her grandfather. Well, you know, like this is a man that, you know, keeps saying that I killed your friend, your other kind of father figure in your life. But because, you know, I believe he was a bad guy. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, this is her grandfather who in, in all you know respects should be this kind of important person in her life. And he's, you know, is trying to connect with her, but he's the man who also potentially killed her other father figure, right? This person that she also looked up to. So kind of interesting parallels there, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. And she, and, she, and uh, he does inquire, hey, have your parents never told you about me? You yeah. Know? So he seems a little bit uh, concerned that she doesn't know about him, but he's definitely in the position of power here. He clearly knows more than she does. He clearly has a lot of weird abilities. He's escaping from handcuffs and plucking eggs out of boiling water, and just he he knows a lot more than he's telling. And he he is, I don't know, uh, manipulating her in some way here, and we're not exactly sure why. Is he being as truthful as he can be? Mm. Yeah. So then uh, I guess she decides that, you know, she's going to finally make the arrest. She's going to bring him in, I think. Uh, so she takes him outside and puts him in a car because he's in a wheelchair. He can't walk. He has to, like, kind of carry her or carry him and put him in a car. Yeah, she has and, to hug and, him, really. She has to hug yeah, her grandfather, really. And, and, put him in the car. and, and she and this has this time. kind of look, right? Uh, she yeah, has. she gets it. She gets how weird it is, and yeah. and, and 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 emotional it is, and and this whole this whole episode, she's been going back and forth, struggling between how am I going to do this police work? Is it going to be subtle and smart the way she did with this fake fainting, or is it going to be just brutal interrogation the way she kind of lets loose at Nixonville, um, and uh, the way she initially resisted bringing him and him in, and now she's finally going for it. So you know, it seems like she's finally decided. You know, I've got to do it this way. And, uh, well, it doesn't work out for her, as we'll see. Yeah. So, uh, and then the scene ends when a giant, uh, you know, magnet, kind of like what you see in like a junkyard, comes down and basically takes the car away with Will inside. And it flies away. You don't see the thing that's taking it away. Um and she's just like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know? Dude, I, I was like, what the fuck? I mean, friends in high places was very literal. It was, very it was literal, really yeah. shocking. It was really, really, yeah. really a shocking ending there. Um, I did not expect that at all. So the question now is, who is this guy? Who is Will? How does he know all this stuff about the secrets in the Tulsa police force? Why is he giving her this information piecemeal? It's, it, it's all very... Um, Ah, and I hope it does eventually get paid off and uh, explained. You know, we assume that he's, unless it's, you know, remote controlled, that he's working with somebody. So yeah, exactly. Who is he working yeah. with? All these unanswered questions. I mean, we got a lot of uh, more kind of clarifications on things that we learned from the first episode and more world building. But then we get thrown even more uh, mysteries and, and things that we want answered, which I, I love from this series. Yeah, I so, really enjoyed it. Yeah. I really enjoyed the episode. Thought it uh, added a lot. And, uh, you know, sometimes those second episodes can be a little slow. So I'm sure even from now, the show's just going to pick up more and more and more steam. Yeah. You know? As a second episode, I thought it was pretty good in, in the sense that it, it built on the world even more. But I, I felt like like in the past, this would have been like a two-hour premiere. I still felt like in the same vein, it was just like the premiere where it was still a lot of place setting and 
and kind of developing and like because you know in this episode we're learning more about will the grandfather character so i think we get a, a lot of new revelations building on the last episode but it also just feels like it's kind of a, a b-side to the first episode right so, oh yeah absolutely uh, yeah absolutely. I, I still definitely feels like it, it was like you know just another part of, of the premiere for me so in that in that vein you know I, I wish there was maybe a little bit more focused development on 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 angela but i think you know she kind of takes the backside to what we learn more about judd and then more about the grandfather yeah um yeah they're definitely going to dole out the answers to these mysteries kind of slowly over the course of uh the season but uh, i'm hopeful that eventually we'll uh find out enough to make for a satisfying uh story and a satisfying conclusion so i'm, I'm excited to see where things go yeah uh so i think that will conclude this week's episode i personally don't really have any theories per se i don't know did you have any no i don't really have any theories i mean besides the fact that i'm now like 90 percent sure dr manhattan is definitely going to show up disguised as a human in some fashion right because they've they've named they dropped that twice in this episode people have mentioned oh he cannot do that and so if they keep saying he cannot do it i'm pretty sure he can he's got uh not a, he's not omnipotent but he's got godlike powers i would be shocked if he doesn't show up in some fashion at some point in this show um and i think we've just gotten more kind of pieces to the theories we talked about last week you know uh you know my theory being definitely disproven and then yes <laughs> theory is kind of up in the air now right because you Still know, up in the air yeah like he could be dr manhattan but then there's a really good case that he's not and he's just still just ozymandias so yeah i i think we'll we'll wait and see on that one so yeah, uh, again, like I said, this I think this will conclude this week's episode. Uh, is there anything you you'd like to plug, or can people follow you uh, anywhere? No, I don't really have a plug. Don't follow me. Don't Google me. Don't look me up. But uh... <laughs> which everyone's gonna do right now. No, but I will say um, the final song that the episode ends with is uh, the Beastie Boys, Eggman. Oh yes, yes. Yeah, Thank so you for a little that. Uh, a little ending music track there. Okay, I guess I'll give uh, Jeff a plug here. You can find more of Jeff works at uh, strangeharbors.com. Uh, uh, you know, where he does a lot of movie and TV reviews. So definitely follow him at Strange Harbors on both Twitter and Instagram. Um, he does really great writing, really great work. Uh, you can follow me at The Wrong Daik. Daik is spelled D-A-Y-I-K. I am both on Instagram and Twitter. I also host another podcast, uh, which is called the Film Trailers Podcast, where we talk uh, basically uh, a lot of movies uh, and movie trailers. So if you definitely want to find me and, and some of my friends doing that one, and then occasionally we'll have uh, Jeff on, and maybe we'll have you on, Amir, maybe one day. Dude, I would love to. Yeah. <laughs> Please um, subscribe to this podcast wherever you find podcasts, you know, with everyone kind of jumping onto the whole Watchmen craze and a bunch of different other podcasts jumping on the whole Watchmen craze. Uh, it really helps that if, you know, uh, especially uh, I think uh, uh, Apple Podcasts, if you can, you know, give us a rating, give us a good rating. It really helps uh, to get our, our podcast out to more people so that, you know, we, we, we love doing this. We love, you know, talking to you guys and, and sharing our knowledge and, and getting our podcast out there. So definitely, um, if you love us, please uh, help support us. Also, if you have any uh, questions or comments or, you know, thoughts on what we've said tonight, uh, you can email us at whowatchesthepodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, we'll, we'll see you guys next time. All right. Thanks for having me on as a guest. And I'll be eagerly tuning in next time. Everybody like and subscribe and uh, vote for the show. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mir. All right, man. Take care. Thanks.